Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today will be a little unlike most Lay of the Land episodes before it because today is the 100th episode. And instead of hearing about what someone awesome is building, we're going to actually hold some space for reflection and speak to some of the themes that pervade the stories of entrepreneurship at large we have now all tuned into for the last two years. Before we actually dive into all of that, I, I do just want to start from a place of gratitude and and thank everyone who has been a part of this show, from every single person who has come on to share their own story, to all of you listening in, to everyone behind the scenes who has helped make this a reality, with a special shout out to Eric Hornung and Jay Klaus over at the Upside Network, and Nathan Todd Hunter, who <laughs> keeps this podcast sounding as good as it does. Without all of you, this show simply would not be. So thank you all very much. One of the best parts of this podcast is that not only has it become this repository of inspiring people who are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, but it has also become an accumulation of geography agnostic experiences and stories. And for me personally, it has actually become one of the most reliable ways I've come across to learn from great people recounting their own trials and tribulations of building something. And this isn't really a, a novel insight. It, it, it actually was personally one of my own motivations for doing the podcast in the first place, to learn from people who I may not otherwise get to interact with during my day-to-day -day life. It's a concept and something I first came across when I first learned about Charlie Munger, who talks extensively about mastering the best of what other people have already figured out. And it's a concept that's also well articulated by many entrepreneurs, athletes, creators, artists who all look to learn from those who have come before them to stand on the proverbial shoulders of giants. And to this idea, they'll speak of thousands of years of history in which Lots of very smart people worked very hard and ran all types of experiments on how to create new businesses, on how to invent new technologies, on new ways to manage, on new ways to lead. And they ran these experiments throughout their entire lives. And at some point, somebody put those lessons down in a book. And for the cost of that book and a few hours of time, you could learn from someone else's entire accumulated experience. And there is so much more to learn from people's past experiences than I think we often realize. You could productively spend all of your time recounting the experiences of great people who have come before you and learn something valuable every single time. And while the medium may have changed from books to podcasts, I have found the underlying exercise is actually the same thanks to the graciousness of those Cleveland and Northeastern Ohio leaders who have come on the show to recount their experiences and lessons. And while everyone who has come on to share their own story has a unique story, I think there is much that can be gleaned as universal wisdom, applicable regardless of a startup's specific situation. For one, I actually think most startups have a very similar set of problems most of the time. 
They're not precisely the same problems, but it was surprising to me to learn how similar the problems are regardless of what that startup is focused on solving and how much of that actually mapped to my own experience navigating startups, particularly as a co-founder of Actual and on the founding team of Votum before that. So with that, I want to explore some of those universal lessons across the entrepreneur's journey. And I, I hope they should feel familiar as we have encountered them throughout the hundred or so stories we've heard so far on this podcast. For today, I will do my best to synthesize extensible learnings I have taken with me from this podcast, from what draws people to entrepreneurship in the first place, to where company ideas actually come from, to the actual importance of culture. And I hope you can all take these learnings with you as well. I think we have to start with the question of why entrepreneurship at all. And I think if we're going to start there, then we actually have to start with people, which is where we will also arrive at when we conclude with culture. It, it always actually comes back to people. Without an entrepreneur, there is not entrepreneurship. What draws people to entrepreneurship has always been fascinating to me because there are evidently so many reasons not to do it. <laughs> the all-encompassing nature of it, that anything but relentless focus is fatal, the, the deluge and ubiquity of rejection, the emotional roller coaster with exhilarating highs and devastatingly demoralizing lows, the probabilistically low likelihood of a positive outcome at all, that if you have the aptitude to be a founder, you could likely find a stable, well-paying job. <laughs> the list is personal and it is daunting <laughs> and it goes on. The, the persistent struggle of it all is a critically humbling exercise. But again, evidently, people try to build things anyway. We, <laughs> we've seen just about 100 examples of that so far. And I think if you take stock of entrepreneurs' motivations, you can understand why, and you find some combination of a desire to captain your own ship, li literal ownership. Founders seek to succeed or fail on their own terms, to, to own the actual outcome, and to have the kind of autonomy that means that nothing will happen unless you actually make it happen. I think you'll also find a desire to operate in the kind of culture that is representative of your values. And this is a topic which we will definitely revisit later in the discussion. You'll find a desire to work on the creation of something that is impactful in the world, that creates real value and addresses real problems that we all face. And to say the one less spoken about out loud, you do also find a motivation of wealth creation. Because when things go right, when you solve a sufficiently impactful problem and unlock real value in the world, or create something that the world wants, it can be a highly lucrative endeavor. And while most startups do not realize this outcome, the reality is that most wealth comes from ownership of something valuable, and that is embedded within the structure of startups. So for, for those motivated by these core tenants, by ownership, by agency, by autonomy, by culture, by impact, if you are looking for opportunities that fall at the intersection of these motivations, more often than not, you'll find an empty set of existing opportunities and have to create this opportunity for yourself. When this manifests in practice, it often manifests in the form of a startup. And again, this is never an easy endeavor. 
As John Nottingham, co-founder of Nottingham Spurk, an inventor of some of the most ubiquitous global products spoke to back on episode 65, most all ambitious ideas were once considered impossible. They were considered impossible until you actually break down what would need to be true so that a future exists where in aggregate those truths enable the idea. The idea becomes possible, and then you take the requisite steps to make that future happen. If you assume something difficult is impossible from the onset, then you will never even try to do it. So assuming you're sufficiently motivated and have opted to embark on this journey and attempt the proverbial impossible to build something impactful, traversing the unknown, mapping uncertainty to absolute certain risk, <laughs> you need to have a sense of where you're trying to go, what ambitious idea you're trying to explore. And I think people often discount ideas. You will constantly hear folks in the context of business mention that ideas don't really matter. They are all a dime a dozen, and when it comes to building something, it's all ultimately about execution. And while I understand where that sentiment comes from, and I think there are aspects of truth in it, where you are trying to go and what problem you are trying to solve matters very much. Some ideas are actually better than other ideas, and the idea what problem you are trying to solve and what company you're trying to build in order to solve it matters at a fundamental level, actually. One observation from all of these conversations throughout the podcast for me is that the, the most interesting people to listen to are often the very people who are the most interested, interested in their idea, interested in that problem they are trying to solve. They exude passion and it, it comes through in spades in their stories. And this passion, I also think, is requisite and it is tied to the importance of the idea itself. Many from the guests on the show like John Nottingham to, to famed entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs have noticed that the reason why you have to have a lot of passion for building something is because if you don't, any rational person would, would just give up. If you don't love it, you're going to fail relative to someone who does love it. So you've got to love it. You, you need to have that kind of passion. Where does this passion come from, though? Where do those ideas actually come from? So one pattern has emerged through the conversations we've had on this podcast, and this pattern holds with my own lived experience as a founder, with the stories of other founders I've read about, with research conducted on the origin of business ideas, and with those founders that I know personally. And generally, that passion and those ideas come from a few places. I will caveat that I don't feel these are entirely mutually exclusive categories, but I do think we'll be able to clearly define a few distinct categories here. I would say roughly half of the founding stories we've heard on this podcast have come from within. And by within, I mean from people paying attention to their own problems and exploring their own intellectual curiosities. Most commonly, origination stems from someone attempting to solve a problem that they experience themselves and recognizing that the value they've unlocked for themselves by solving this problem is extensible to everyone else who is experiencing that same problem. Just to highlight a few examples of this, on episode 11 with Nicole Pelosi, we learned her founding motivation stemmed from the challenge she repeatedly encountered over the past 20 years, trying to find safe, reliable, on-demand, in-home family care, and how difficult that undertaking actually proved to be. 
She built OndiCare to solve that exact problem she was facing. On episode 24 with Ryan Cleary, we learned that his motivations for founding FloatMe, which since then has raised close to $50 million in funding in its mission to increase financial literacy and to combat overdraft fees and triple-digit interest rates, stemmed from he and his co-founders' direct encounters with the acute predatory dangers of payday lending. On episode 29 with the Numa Bros, we learned that Brandon and Jared Smith set off to build Numa, which stands for No More Artificials because they themselves became sufficiently fed up with the unhealthy products given to them as college athletes and pro hockey players and wanted to create a better beverage. On episode 32 with David Edelman, we learned that he founded Thrivable after experiencing the disconnect firsthand between what diabetes patients want and what healthcare companies are actually building for diabetes patients. So that is the first bucket. The second bucket, closely related to solving your own problems, come from the stories of founders who were highly dialed into their own curiosities and took the time to explore and to tinker and who unlocked real value as a consequence of that exploration of their own curiosity. Here we have examples like Mac Anderson, co-founder of Cleveland Kitchen, formerly known as Cleveland Kraut, who back on episode 20, recounted his experience growing up working with Ohio farmers and at farmers markets since he was a child, where familiarly, he had cultural heritage and had fallen in love with the art of fermentation and noticed that even amidst the growing farm to table movement and growing food scene here in Cleveland, there was not a sufficient sauerkraut offering. The company was ultimately born out of his, his brother, and his brother-in-law's shared love of fermentation and making sauerkraut themselves. On episode 39, A.C. Evans, who is the founder of Drips, one of the 20 fastest growing companies in North America and which arguably created an entirely new market industry around automated conversations at scale via conversational texting, Drips stemmed from AC's fascination with automated marketing, which he discovered at a young age and mastered over a decade of tinkering before founding Drips in the exact wake of that exploration. David Davis on episode 79 has a very similar story. We learned his fascination with the internet at a young age allowed him to explore various direct-to-consumer e-commerce projects, generating over seven figures in revenue all before he turned 21. He was then able to leverage that exact experience to found FBA Flip, a marketplace to service the emerging world of e-commerce M&A transactions in the Amazon ecosystem where he had been tinkering in for the past decade. On episode 88 with Ann Scoach, we learned about how she was ultimately able to marry art and business in Ann Kate, her Made in America accessories brand and manufacturing firm by pursuing her long practice passion and interest for fashion as a profession. On episode 56 with Dr. Dan German, we learned about OrthoBrain, which has now raised roughly $10 million in pursuit of transforming the delivery of orthodontics and addressing the global orthodontic skill shortage. OrthoBrain stemmed from his genuine fascination with orthodontics as a practitioner in the field for over 30 years and his depth of knowledge in that exact industry. And the list of these kinds of examples just goes on, from Scott Calissimo of Land Energy and Cleveland Cycle Works, who explored his passion for motorcycles, to Lindsay Watson, the founder of Augment Therapy, who leveraged her passion 
as a practicing pediatric physical therapist to explore the ways to utilize augmented reality to engage kids to exercise. So passion can be found within, from solving your own problems, from exploring your own interests. Passion can also be found without. And here, without refers to external forces that come from the world at large and pay attention to societal advances, to paradigm shifts, to riding the proverbial waves of technology, of mobile, of AI, of social media, of all those things that technology can compound exponentially. And then working back from some future which does not yet exist, but in the eyes of the founder, perhaps should. My own founding stories fall into this bucket. These were the the kinds of questions we were asking that led to the founding of Votum. Why is it that people can't securely vote from their phones? Why is it that those who have physical accessibility considerations are forced to navigate a process they physically cannot in order to vote? Why is it that members of the military living abroad, those who are directly putting themselves on the line for the democratic process, are the demographic most disenfranchised from it? The future of voting is mobile. That was the inspiration. The origins of Actual, which I co-founded back in 2019, also falls into the same kind of category. The problems of Actual were not problems directly experienced by myself or by my co-founders, Charlie and Lucky. They are problems felt acutely by healthcare practitioners and by health systems. The healthcare industry itself is anachronistic in many ways often overlooked and hard to reach by the technology startups that have proliferated in social, in commerce, and in other sexier but less consequential and foundational industries like healthcare, like manufacturing, like financial and government infrastructure. The paradigm shift taking place now, though, is is actually one of innovation in these unsexier but critically important industries whose archaic frameworks and infrastructures whose misaligned stakeholders and understructured siloed data, I think poses some of the most impactful opportunities that technology can address today. At Actual, we asked, why on average does it take 100 days to onboard a clinician at a hospital? We asked, why don't clinicians have ownership over their own identity and their own data, like state licenses, like board certifications, medical education diplomas, dangerous substance registrations, and so on? which are the very primary bottleneck in this entire credentialing process that spans 100 days. From the very beginning, we had a clear vision of zero-day credentialing, a future of automated clinician onboarding and digital credentials that should exist, and since then have been working backwards from that vision to unlock as much real value for everyone involved. Similarly, we have Dallas Hoganson's story from episode 86, where he discussed his thinking behind Felux. Dallas expressed that he was highly motivated by and was explicitly exploring fragmented industries with low NPS scores, meaning industries where those working in them are effectively detractors of the products that they have available to them. So referring basically to those exact types of overlooked, unsexy industries that haven't historically garnered the innovation found in other industries. There, he could thoughtfully apply the leverage of software and vertically integrate a solution to simplify a valuable product. Having raised over $24 million since inception, 
Under Dallas's leadership, Felix has grown exponentially over the last few years in their effort to digitize the $2 trillion traditional paper-based steel industry as they have built out their platform to manage the entire steel sourcing process from procurement, logistics, and financing, facilitating many hundreds of million dollars in transactions. Their vision for the future, the future of steel and procurement, is digital. In the same vein, we have the story of Signal Cleveland from episode 89. from. 2000 to 2020, why did the newspaper industry's advertising revenue fall by an estimated 80%? Why did weekday newspaper circulation fall from 55.8 million households to an estimated 28.6 million from 2000 to 2018? Why have over 2,000 papers closed since 2004? Why has there been a 60% reduction in newsroom jobs since 2008? These were the kinds of paradigm shifts happening in local news and the questions that Lila Mills and her partners at the American Journalism Project were asking when they founded Signal Cleveland to realize a future where everyone here in Cleveland has access to local Cleveland news. All right, so we now have inspiration from within where people are solving their own problems and where people are paying attention to their own curiosities. We have inspiration from without where people are leveraging paradigm shifts and working backwards from some imagined future, but there are even more places where ideas can come from. The last solid category is is actually related to a concept we've discussed before on the podcast, and it is this idea that The business a company ultimately succeeds with is most often not the business that that company started with because it can be so difficult to discern at the onset of the entrepreneurial journey exactly what combination of product and market will result in this elusive product market fit, you know, what actually results in business success. So, so much of the startup journey is just actually trying to survive, to survive long enough to continue to ask new questions and refine the value that you are unlocking. So in some senses, ideas in this last category come from recognizing what is working within the business, what is not working within the business, and reorienting around or doubling down on what is working. Sometimes this manifests in what people refer to as pivots, Sometimes this manifests as spinouts from one company to another, and sometimes this manifests as completely new companies addressing a similar problem as before. So to explore a few examples of what this looks like in practice, at the founding of BoxCast, Gordon Daly explained back in episode 26 how BoxCast ultimately pivoted from a niche service offering funeral live streaming at its onset to an automated end-to-end live streaming product platform available across many industries. Anthony Hughes on episode 17 explained how after running the software guild down in Akron, he felt confident he had validated the software apprenticeship and coding bootcamp model at large, which he could then double down on when he later founded Tech Elevator, leveraging those lessons learned from the software guild. Anthony was ultimately able to scale Tech Elevator to a larger state and exit to Stride, a leading education company. On episode 35, we learned about how Kate Fulzer was able to navigate Wiser through a successful pivot during the pandemic by shifting from a focus on alumni engagement to helping universities ensure enrollment of prospective students. 
The latter is where the company ultimately found its product market fit, and that is what enabled Wiser to exit to EAB in 2021, another leading education company. So finally, following this last category, there is a long tail of other places where passion and ideas come from that I, I wasn't quite sure how to neatly categorize, but might include a variety of other niche inspirations like technology transfer from academic institutions, which applied to companies like Folio Photonics and Sweat ID back on Steve Santamaria and Dr. Chelsea Monty Bromer's episodes uh, 99 and 77, respectively. So now with some semblance of what motivates entrepreneurs to get started and a framework to understand where their ideas come from, there are many directions we could take it from here. We could follow the life cycle of startups and talk about what happens after the idea. How do you identify customers and users? How do you then craft your pitch? How do you solve problems and iterate on your product? How do you then scale your business? We could revisit the ecosystem around startups that we began to explore back in episode 50. But instead, I want to focus the rest of this on exploring culture. Culture is something that nearly every single person who's come on this podcast has spoken about. And I think that in and of itself is worth paying attention to. Why is it that everyone speaks about culture? Why is culture fundamentally one of the most important pieces to this entrepreneurial puzzle? My own perspective on the best way to understand culture is by observing how people behave. As Leo Pena, co-founder of Presta, addressed back on episode 92, it is very easy to talk about the values you aspirationally want to uphold as ideals. It is very easy to pay lip service to culture, but often you will observe a discrepancy between what people say they will do and what they actually do, which is a discrepancy between the values you espouse and the values you practice. Culture is what you do in practice. It is not what you aspire to do in theory. So with that, it, it can be hard to pinpoint exactly what culture looks like at any given organization but I think it can be generally gauged, and it can be gauged by observing what kinds of behaviors are rewarded and which behaviors are punished. It can be gauged by observing how people are actually spending their time, their attention, their resources, what rules are enforced and what rules are ignored. What happens when someone fails? How is risk assessed and handled? How are decisions made when management is not in the room? How prevalent is encouragement? How prevalent is shame? How do those two things manifest themselves respectively? And as Leo concluded, culture is ultimately revealed when things are tough and the espoused values are tested. These kinds of questions can help you discern what exactly is that gap between what values are espoused and what behavior is practiced. Again, it's very easy to state values, whether those be you know, transparency, integrity, commitment to diversity, Whatever you're aspirationally saying is important to you, but in practice, what you state doesn't matter. <laughs> what you do is the only real reflection of what value and what kind of culture you actually have. So why does this all matter though? Why do so many focus so intensely on curating a specific kind of culture? There's this proverbial wisdom I'm sure many of you have come across that culture eats strategy for breakfast, which 
Perhaps like many aphorisms resides in some truth, but I've come to believe that people spend so much time and attention on culture because when there is a discrepancy between what you say and what you do, people disengage, people stop taking the whole thing seriously, and people ultimately stop caring. Outside of the most obvious reason why startups fail, which is by running out of actual money, most startups' problems are people problems. And people problems generally stem from culture and how some of those questions that we just went through are answered. Consider how this can manifest in a real startup. Imagine a hypothetical culture. To me, the best kind of culture is one that facilitates and promotes both vulnerability and accountability, where people feel comfortable talking about risks and surfacing things that are not going well, and where leadership sets the vision and communicates to people so clearly their worth and their value that they feel inspired to achieve and realize their own potential. So what happens when the gap between espouse and practice values grow? When culture breaks down, what happens when the opposite becomes true? When you instead create an environment where people question their self-worth or their competency? What happens when you normalize vitriol? What happens when you care more about being right than understanding what is reality? Well, you may start to observe in that environment as you make your way through those prompting cultural questions from before is that success is not celebrated. Failure is punished. Mistakes are lambasted. Risks cease to be effectively escalated and ultimately creates a self-reinforcing downward spiral where now from a place of fear or disinterest rather than of inspiration, People optimize their time for avoiding mistakes rather than achieving excellence and doing the best job, which actually requires making mistakes. At a company level, it kills an organization's tolerance for risk, and risk aversion fundamentally kills innovation. At an individual level, people will check out and becomes this entire prescription for employee attrition. You'd find yourself with quite a pernicious culture. And it is that exact kind of fatal scenario you want to avoid, and it is why culture matters. I feel Doug Katz back on episode 94 said it best when he expressed that the best of leadership and cultural tenets stem from the lessons you learned in kindergarten. Culture doesn't have to be complicated. Most kindergarten lessons are pretty simple, but that does not mean it's easy, especially because a culture isn't a static thing. It's dynamic and present. And intentionally maintaining a culture requires diligence and attention and care. If something feels off culture and it's not addressed, that becomes the new culture which you now have to reconcile with. What we have learned from most guests who have come on the podcast, and it is something that I personally feel at the deepest level is true, is that a company's most valuable assets are its people. One of the many trite but true things, but business is just people and culture's importance follows from that. And with that, I will <laughs> wind down this reflective monologue. So thank you for sticking with me so far. I know a single voice soliloquy can be tough, but I hope you all found this exercise as valuable as I have. Over 100 episodes in, entrepreneurial motivations, where ideas come from, the importance of culture, these, these are some of the main patterns I've observed and a few of the main learnings I think we can synthesize from everyone's collective experience. So thank you all again. If 
anything discussed here resonated, if you disagreed with anything, if you have any feedback on the podcast, if there are people whose stories you'd like to hear, or you just want to reach out and say hello, please do reach out. I welcome any and all feedback, and I appreciate all of you tuning in. Next week, we will be back with another guest on Lay of the Land. Until then. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.